0: everybody. Welcome to the Crohn's Fitness Food Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Gish, Crohn's warrior and IBD nephropathy warrior, and I'm dedicated to sharing the stories of those with IBD. Thank you so much for joining me today. Now let's get to it. Well, hi, everyone. My guest today is Clemmie Oliver. Diagnosed with ulcerative colitis in 1999, She had an ileostomy at age 11, was later diagnosed with IBS in addition to IBD, and is now focused on helping others improve their lives and find better health. After becoming a registered associate nutritionist and qualified nutritional therapist, she founded the Nutrition and Lifestyle Medicine Clinic in 2018. She is passionate about empowering patients with IBD by providing evidence-based nutrition support to bring clarity around diet and their IBD, remove fear from food, optimize nutritional intake, and support system management, as well as being their patient advocate, ensuring they are receiving the care they need. Thank you so much for joining me today, Clemmie, and welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Stephanie. It's great to be here.
0: It's an honor to have you. So before we jump into what you're doing now and how you're helping others with IBD, let's start with your story. And can you start off by talking about when and how you were first diagnosed?
1: Yeah, sure. So I was only nine years old um, when I was diagnosed. Um, I'm 34 now. And it really, I guess I uh, had symptoms for a little while before I actually told anyone about it. I kept them to myself for a bit. And I think that was probably because I didn't know what was going on. But also perhaps it, I had never, I'd never had had the knowledge at that age that if I was bleeding or getting loads of diarrhea, then maybe something wasn't right.
0: Did that scare you since you were only nine and you really didn't have that knowledge of what's normal, not normal? Did you feel scared at all? Or was that just not even a thought, really?
1: Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think I probably was a bit scared. I think in my heart of hearts, I knew that something wasn't right. And I think that my reaction when someone did found out did find out probably shows how afraid I was. So I was at home and I'd been to the loo and I'd forgotten I'd obviously forgotten to flush it. And um, my mum then went to the bathroom and then she came in and I remember so clearly I was sitting in the kitchen with my sister with our dogs, and she came in and she said, um, "Has someone?" Been to the loo, like is uh, there's something kind of that's not quite right, and I remember initially just saying no, 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 it wasn't me, and denying it again, and then she probed a bit more, and then I revealed it was me, and then I just burst into tears. So I think that that w- clearly that kind of outpouring shows that um, I clearly kind of realized I think that something wasn't right. Um, and so she took me straight to the GP. Um, so our what we call them like general practitioners here. So um, like primary care physician. Um, and then they sent me straight to the ER. So our accident and emergency.
0: What was going through your mind at that point being so young and then all of a sudden you go from maybe thinking something was wrong, but probably you had no idea what was ahead of you. So now you're facing all of these tests and doctor's appointments. What was going through your mind at such a young age? And how did your family help support you? And would you have any tips for maybe parents who have children facing this at such a young age?
1: Yeah, so I, if I'm completely honest, it was all a bit of a blur. And I think that's our body and brain's way, isn't it, of coping with these traumatic experiences. Um, what I do remember really clearly is that when I went into the ER, um, like an older male doctor came in and said, tell me about your stools. And that language, like I'd never really heard of that being called that and I was just really terrified I don't think also I'd ever talked about my stools or my poo with anyone so that felt really alien to me and again kind of terrified me a bit so it was good my mum was obviously there with me and she helped me but I remember that really clearly being quite a scary moment for me to have to talk about that. But in terms of kind of you asked the question there about how parents can be supportive, I think it's, I guess, first of all, it's about making the subject of poo not a taboo and really just making that part of kind of a normal conversation at home so that your child feels that they can talk to you about if something's not right or something doesn't feel right So I think that's kind of the first thing. And then in terms of, I think my mum being there when I was being asked those questions and being there to comfort me when I was sad, but also to help me understand what the doctors were asking me, is really important. And I think that's like a, I think a point for physicians as well, is that it's really important to understand how someone communicates and use their language. Otherwise it can feel really alien.
0: Great tips. So take me through the next part of your journey. You start getting tests. Did you get a diagnosis right away? Uh,
1: yeah, my time to diagnosis was quite short. They, The care for pediatrics here is very good. And I was diagnosed pretty quickly. And then I started on steroid treatment and basically had stays in and out of hospital quite regularly. Never really got into remission. It was kind of an ongoing journey. I was on steroids and on mesalazine. Now, at this time in kind of 99, 2000, the biologics weren't really a thing. So it was really kind of mesalazine, kind of azathioprine, and then the next thing was immunosuppressants. And really, I, rem- I remember being on about 18 tablets a day and having like a little plastic case that I took around with me, which had all my medication in it. And really my world getting just smaller and smaller and smaller. And in the end, every t- at school, I would pick up infections and bugs and that would set me back always and so maybe i'd be going through a slightly better period and they'd be saying okay maybe she is getting towards remission and then i'd get some kind of illness at school and that would just knock me back and put me back in a flare so my parents actually took me out of school and i was homeschooled for a bit which when you're that age actually school's such a big part of your life and it's a big part of your social life too and i didn't see my friends and so my world got smaller in that respect And I um, was very lucky. I grew up riding ponies and it was my real passion. I absolutely loved it. But it meant when I really wasn't very well, I didn't feel like riding and I couldn't do any of that either. So I really was kind of stuck at home and had a very small world by the end, basically.
0: How did you cope with that being so young and I feel like really it's only been in the recent years where we're really focusing a lot more on mental health and talking about these things. But at that age, you had to be suffering with your mental health at that point. I would imagine with your world growing so much smaller, how did you cope with all of the changes?
1: Yeah, I think it's funny. I I don't... Th- fun weirdly I'm not sure it affected me hugely I think I'm I was very lucky that I have had a very supportive have a very supportive family and a very strong family unit and I think that as a patient I think I just kept putting one foot in front of the other and I also think because of my age perhaps I wasn't quite sure of the enormity of what I was going through And I still, I think that that was the case right up until when I went into surgery, that I don't think I really realized quite how well I was. I don't think I really realized quite how much the disease can put you at risk of lots of different things. I just, I don't think I realized. I think my um, parents protected me from that a bit, which I think was probably a good thing because it meant that I was yeah I guess that my mental health wasn't hugely affected by it but I think my I think in terms of looking back now and in terms of how it might affect me now I'm quite lucky that I don't think it really does the only thing I definitely do notice is that when I go into a hospital environment now that there's some kind of I guess perhaps it might be termed PTSD symptoms, I suppose, come about, but it's only in very specific circumstances
0: like that. That's good that it really didn't affect you too much as a child. And I think it just shows how invaluable having a support system, just how beneficial your family was at that point.
1: Yeah, very much so. I think that was really key to me, I guess, feeling like, safe and secure in a time in my life, I suppose, where um at, perhaps my health and other stuff felt out of of control. Actually, Um, everything at home was stable and I have two siblings and they were really supportive as well. So I think that that kind of helped that there was some stability there anyway. So I think family and support network is hugely important in that respect.
0: So take me up to the next part of your journey. You mentioned you had surgery at, I think at this point you were 11 years old. So take me through that.
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, as I said, really, I, I didn't really get to remission or even if it was, it was very short periods of remission. And the doctors just said to my parents, basically, the next stop is immunosuppressants. And they said, but given her age and give the severity, so I had pancreatitis, given the severity of her disease, which was um, severe. And given the fact that she's really not even responding to steroids that well, if you start on things like immunosuppressants now, like there's only one way this is going, basically. And, but my parents did kind of wait it out a bit and tried it with the doctors saying that that was fine just to see if the medication would work. So I never actually went on to the immunosuppressant medication because the doctors just advised that. I was putting off the complete inevitable basically but it did get to the stage where and they, they did try they weren't really sure at the time whether I had Crohn's or colitis um, so I was trialed on liquid diets which actually made me worse <laughs> um, because it wasn't Crohn's it was colitis but also I have a milk protein allergy or intolerance or something which meant that large volumes of liquid which I've had since like a baby and have just never really grown out of it so um that made me worse but I ended up having a nasogastric tube because I wasn't able to drink it and my parent my mum said to the doctor I don't think this is working for her she's being sick every time she drinks it she really doesn't want to drink it and the doctors kind of said she's being silly we need to do this so they put a tube down my nose <clears throat> and I was fed through that for a bit but it was a, kind of a crazy experience and I remember again this kind of snippets that come back that I remember um, kind of during those feeds being sick and worrying that the um, tube was going to come out was going to come up and come out of my mouth and I remember being in quite a lot of pain when the feeds were happening so walking around was quite helpful for me and I remember walking around our garden and just being really sick in the garden and that's like definitely quite a strong memory that I had have that time together or that time taking that so basically it got to the stage where they kind of tried everything and really again a really clear memory was waking up one morning and going to the bathroom and like there being lots of blood as there always was and then going downstairs having a bowl of cereal and then being sick and going to the loo again and being like oh that's weird because I'm not normally sick that much at this stage so this was a, quite a way after trying the liquid diet and then my mom was like oh let's eat try and eat something else so I tried to eat something else and I was sick, and sick and sick and sick and by this stage I was well I was 11 years old and I was two and a half stone so in t- I'm not sure what the conversion is in terms of kilos, for that, but it's pretty small. So I was pretty tiny by then. My growth had been stunted a bit and I was taken into hospital and they said, this is it. Like, if we don't move with this now, she might not survive. So I was transferred and I was actually had to be stabilized for a week on IV nutrition. And fluids before they felt comfortable that I'd survived the surgery. So, and even I think during that, I still don't think I realized quite how serious things were. But obviously, my poor parents were taking that burden so much all the time. And I I can't imagine what they must have gone through in all of that experience.
0: I imagine they were doing their best to protect you and probably didn't put it into words how serious it was for you, knowing that at 11 how could you take that at 11? So they must have really been bearing a burden, not only for their own fears, but yours as well.
1: Totally. And I think, um, I don't think I realized, I said that there was a moment where I think I kind of realized that something was quite serious when they were actually taking me down on the bed in the elevator to the operating theater. And both my parents were there and my dad burst into tears. And I was like why are you crying why are you crying and he just couldn't hold in and then I started panicking and my mom was like get away get away like don't don't show your emotions or whatever not that it was a bad thing but at the mo at, in that moment I remember being like oh my gosh this is quite serious and then that was quite I was quite panicky then going into the surgery because I suddenly was like here's my dad who had been like strong and everything like that. And then being in tears and me suddenly realizing, oh my gosh, why is he crying? This must be serious if he's crying. So um, that I think was a moment as well. But then I was in the operating theater and didn't know very much about it after that. So
0: <laughs> Got some good, good drugs at that point.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Good calming drugs.
0: <laughs> so you wake up from surgery, 11 years old, you have a stoma. Take me through that experience and... Did you get better at that point? You went, I think, seven years with a bag. So yeah. take me through that experience and if you would have any tips for other teenagers in the same position.
1: Yeah, sure. I think, again, like I I, think, I feel like I'm going to say this loads. Like I feel like I'm lucky. I feel like I'm fortunate or whatever.
0: And that's great to hear.
1: <laughs> yeah. I think in terms of timing in my life, I think I'm, I was really fortunate that the way it kind of played out, because I think at the age of eleven you're not quite in your teenage years, and I think I still, it was, so it was th- it was a good time to have something like this happen to you. In terms of like changing appearances, I knew a family friend of ours who, when she was sixteen, she had a bag, and I know that that was really really difficult for her. And I think it's just such a different time in your life, like eleven to sixteen. So I would say I've I recovered really well in hospital I didn't have any complications post-surgery I the um, hospital were amazing and my mum was amazing actually in terms of saying like you have to learn to look after this by yourself because I, I know lots of people at that age maybe had their mums change their or parents or someone else or carers change their bags for them Um, But actually, they said, the more you can get used to doing it yourself, and the more you can do it yourself, the more independence you're going to have going forwards. So that was so good that they said that right from the beginning. And it just meant that I was able to just look after myself, which was really helpful. So that's definitely something that I would encourage if anyone's going through this is although it can be really weird to start with and it can be quite strange getting used to it and you've also got the incision from the surgery and it's really weird looking at your intestines coming out of your abdomen but that you do get used to it and if you can manage it yourself and you can do all the bag changes and that kind of stuff yourself even if it takes a little bit of time to that to get to that stage it means you're not reliant on anyone else to support you, which I, I found really helpful, particularly at that age. So I, I think for me, it was a life-changing experience in a really positive way. I had gone from a very small world when I was really unwell and not being able to do the things I loved and not being able to see my friends or family or like wider family to a place where I didn't have to worry about where the loo was all the time to a place of like getting my strength back, being able to go back to school and hang out with my friends, be able to go back to riding. And my world just opened up and I felt well. And that was just so amazing. And uh, so it really, it gave me my life back.
0: That's incredible. It's so good to hear. And just You know, it it warms my heart to know that you had such an incredibly supportive family that throughout even the times when you weren't well, you still had a good childhood for the most part, it sounds like, that you didn't really realize how serious it was. And you had a good childhood, even as your world shrank. But then to hear that everything opened back up after the surgery and the world was your playground again.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And look, I, I would say that I lived a pretty normal teenage life after the surgery. Um, there prob- there were a few things that I was a bit restricted with. So I didn't feel really that confident in going to sleepovers and staying at other people's houses. Um, my mum never kind of forced me to do that. Uh, but I think probably aside from that, I did everything that all my friends did. I played sports as I rode, as I said, and I did so many different things and nothing really stopped me. I like swam and climbed mountains and did loads and loads of stuff. And it was, it was really, really great. So there is life after stoma surgery, particularly at that young age, And I want people to know that, that actually, that it can, that life can get better and that it really can give you your life back sometimes. Because I think that people worry so much, whatever age you're at, when you have a surgery like that, that it changes you physically so much. And of course, it puts a, a big emotional strain on you as well. But actually, once you get used to it, it can really give you your life back and expand your life a lot.
0: That's a great message. So you actually had a reversal done, a stoma reversal done in 2009. So take me through what the decision was to do that and then how life was at that point.
1: Yeah. Do you know, it's something I've been thinking about a bit about recently in terms of um, the path I feel was pretty mapped out for me in terms of surgery, Um, and I don't think I knew until Probably in my 20s, after I'd had the J Pouch surgery, that the J Pouch was an option, that it wasn't something that I had to have. It was something that I could choose to have if I wanted to. But I think it was just always something that they said, like, we'll take out her colon, we'll give her a bag, we'll let her grow and develop because she's been two years of stunted growth. We'll let her go back to school, we'll let her do her teenage years. And then once she takes a year out before going to university, we'll use that time to do the surgery. So I think like basically also all my teenage years were kind of leading up to that point as well. Um, I was still able to enjoy life, but I knew that at some point it wasn't going to be forever, Um, which maybe in itself helped a little bit. I haven't really thought about that that much, but perhaps it did help in terms of the coping mechanisms with it. But I was pretty happy with my bag. So yeah, basically as everyone was planning I don't know if it's the same in the US but in the UK people sometimes take a year out after after school and before you go to university. I know that there's different terminology span in terms of college and things like that. So everyone and lots of people go traveling and go around the world and and things like that. So as people were trying, um, as my friends were planning their travels, I was planning my surgeries <laughs> which was a little bit different. So And I guess also just something to slightly segue here a little bit is something that I didn't do when I was younger and I had my bag, which I wish I'd done now, is I didn't really tell any of my school friends about it. So my really best friend at school knew about it, but actually none of my other friends knew about it. And it wasn't till I started sharing my story much later down the line that I had friends getting back in touch with me, perhaps who I hadn't seen since school, saying, I can't believe what you went through and that you didn't tell us about it and that we couldn't be there to support you with it and I think there's this fear that we're going to be judged if we have a bowel condition because of bowels and bowel habits and poo being such a taboo subject but actually if hiding that from people means less of a support network around you. So that was that. So they, the people didn't really know why I was having surgery, but they knew I'd been unwell and, and that kind of thing. So I went in for the surgery in January uh, of that year. And it was a two-stage surgery. Um, and, and it was, I would say it was quite tough. I'd gone from being very, very unwell for two years to being really well for seven years. And also like really independent and everything. And then I think my... Biggest regrets, probably a strong word, but my biggest piece of advice, I think, probably, which I learned the hard way, um, was I didn't mentally prepare myself for the reversal surgery. I think it was probably something to do with my age. I was just getting on with life and enjoying it. And I remember two days before the surgery, my mum said, I know that you're physically really well, but have you like mentally prepared yourself for the surgery? And I remember being like, I don't know what you're talking about, (laughs) mum. Of course, I'm going to be fine. Um, But actually, she was absolutely right. I hadn't really thought about it at all. And also hadn't really thought about how I'd feel. And I think it really, for me, the struggle was going from being so, so well to being to feeling quite unwell again, as in just that post-surgery and the pain and, and that kind of stuff that all comes with surgery naturally. Um, it, I think it probably triggered some old stuff in me and I found it quite difficult to go from the one extreme to the other. Um, So I definitely say if you are facing surgery and you've been well for quite a long time it is worth just kind of mentally preparing yourself for the fact that it might be a bit rubbish for a short period of time again after that but that it again it does get better after that. Uh, So I did um, then four months between the two surgeries so I had my second stage of the J pouch surgery in the April of that year. And then in the October, so like six months later, I started university.
0: How are you doing at that point? Had you felt completely healed from both surgeries? And what was your life like again at that point? Did you go back into feeling well and reaching staying in remission? Yeah. So I
1: um, struggled recovering from the first surgery, which is why they left a slightly longer gap because they were going to do it a bit sooner. But the second surgery I recovered really, really well from and my J pouch settled down really nicely. And I basically, again, I was like living a normal life again and went to uni and just like, did everything that a normal uni student does, like partying and making new friends, and just fully embracing life without a bag, which which again it was amazing. As I said, my my bag gave me my life back, a hundred percent. But there was something, there was like a, a an extra freedom, I guess, not having
0: it. And has it stayed that way since, in the years following? Yeah. So
1: I um again, I think I've been pretty fortunate that my journey with my pouch. In comparison to some other people, has been a good one. I did get quite unwell in my end of my first year at uni, maybe kind of towards the second year, um, where I got, I think probably what was like the norovirus, a like a gastroenteritis, quite badly, and I'd gone from being Like pretty well, and not really having any kind of symptoms at all, to then not feeling that well. And I lost quite a lot of weight and I kept losing weight. And I started to lose my hair a bit, and things kind of weren't that great. So I did, after a little bit, go and get some tests done, but they all came back clear. So I didn't have pouchitis. I didn't have anything else that was going on that was untoward. And so that's when I was given the diagnosis of kind of IBS or like irritable pouch basically and told that there wasn't really that much that could be done about it.
0: And that diagnosis actually changed the course of your life thereafter because you were actually doing public relations and then you got the IBS diagnosis and I believe that's really when you started digging into diet and nutrition. So go ahead and take me through that part of your journey and what was it about diet and nutrition that you learned along the way and how it benefited your health overall.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And this is where my mum comes up trumps again, that it was actually her suggestion to go and see a nutritionist. And um, she actually booked in um, for me to go and see one. And I had got, I was just like, oh, I don't really see the point. I've always been told that diet doesn't make any difference. and And I think we just didn't have the research and the data that we had back then when I was first diagnosed that we have now so it n- isn't necessarily through my consultant's fault or anything like that we just didn't have the data at the time but I would basically all lived my entire my entirely like IBD diagnosed life thinking that what I put in my mouth really had no impact on my body whatsoever and I think that that's such an an important distinction and narrative for people to understand is that sometimes so you might be told diet doesn't make any difference to your disease we now know that that's complete rubbish and that it really does but also this thing of um saying oh diet doesn't make any difference I think in my head also then the kind of led into oh diet doesn't make any difference to my overall health or anything basically and I think that's what I see a lot with patients now in the work that I do is that they're, they're told, oh, diet doesn't make a difference. But in that vein, they're also kind of accepting that diet really doesn't make a difference overall and isn't really important. But but what we know is that diet is really important to help reduce our risk of non-communicable d- diseases like type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, all of those kind of things, which are hugely, hugely important. And actually, the prevalence of some of those things, like type type two diabetes, is higher in patients with IBD. So, and I don't know whether the data quite correlates as to the fact that generally people have poorer diets when they have IBD, so that then they're increasing their risk of these these diseases. So, I think that that was something that was important. So, I went to see a nutritionist. Coming back to the story, Um, sorry, I segued away a bit there, but. I went not expecting anything, basically, because of what i had been told by um, my consultant. And I made some dietary changes off the back of talking to the nutritionist. And within two weeks, I felt better than I'd felt in really quite a long time, probably years.
0: What were you noticing up until that point? I imagine most of it was stemming from the IBS at that point, assuming you were in remission, or maybe it was a mix of IBD and IBS. But what were some of the symptoms that you'd experienced over the years?
1: Yeah, so in terms of symptoms, um, in terms of remission, I I was h- have been since my first surgery, age 11, in what is sometimes terms of as surgical remission. So because the if- affected part of the bowel has been completely removed, there isn't the ability for the disease to flare. So um, in terms of the symptoms I, I was experiencing, not IBU, related necessarily although I do definitely still think I have extra intestinal manifestations so the manifestations that you can get outside the bowels like skin issues and things like that I definitely think I still have those now but in terms of the other symptoms they were quite IBS related so bloating quite kind of loose pouch output um, but also like fatigue like feeling really tired feeling nauseous every time I ate So I felt sick every time I had something to eat, which really put me off food quite a lot. And I'm quite a foodie. And then I mentioned as well that I started to lose my hair a bit. And I generally just like wasn't well, basically.
0: So what were some of the first changes to your diet that you made? Because you said you started to notice improvement within weeks. What were some of those first changes you made and how did it progress from there?
1: Yeah, sure. So we discussed a bit about the fact that really since a child and then having that experience with the liquid diet and then feeling sick every time I ate, that perhaps this milk protein allergy or, or some kind of intolerance in that respect to dairy might still be very much there, which is was never something that had been brought up or kind of focused on for me before. So I did a trial elimination of dairy, which for me personally, given my history, was seemed like the right thing to do. And actually, the nausea went for me in that respect. And then just generally kind of focusing on having a bit more of a healthy balanced diet in a bit more in terms in line with the general guidelines of what we should be eating for a healthy balanced diet. And that was something that really transformed me. And I guess it it, perhaps in terms of the, because the nausea was something that I was dealing with every day, every time I ate, that was probably something that really made me feel so much better that that went away.
0: So at what point did nutrition really change your path of career? Because you're now, you're running your own clinic, as I mentioned in the intro. So how did that come to be when you really recognized this is life-changing and I'm going to quit the field I'm in right now. I'm going to completely shift gears, get new training and start a clinic.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I don't think it sounds quite straightforward when you put it that way, but the journey definitely wasn't so straightforward. Um, so I um, had a bit of an epiphany age 25, um, which was qu- kind of coincided with going to see this nutritionist and feeling much better. And, and I just, I on my 25th birthday, I thought, the job I'm doing at the moment, I can't see myself, myself doing it in 25 years' time. I just, it's not my calling in life. And so I then started to explore what other options were out there for me in terms of changing careers. And given the experience that I'd had, and then the research that I'd done off the back of that in terms of seeing that nutrition is making those dietary changes, then understanding that there were lots of people in my position who'd always been told that diet didn't make any difference, but then had discovered themselves that really it did. So all of that kind of came together over a few months of saying like, right, okay, I basically want to help people just like me who have, I guess, been denied the opportunity to explore diet as an option or have been told that it doesn't make any difference. I really wanted to make sure that there was someone that was shouting about it, but that came from a place of being qualified and and understanding the research and um, from that perspective. So I then looked at the path to get there and went back to uni. So I studied for three years and I then set up the clinic in 2018. And that was five years ago now and have been working with people all across the world. I'm so lucky. I feel so fortunate and so lucky to have worked with just the most wonderful patients and to be doing a job that I absolutely adore, like helping to improve the lives of others with IBD. There is for me like no greater gift in life than that.
0: That's incredible. What a what a journey too that took you to that point. In your practice, you actually because I went to your website and you focus on not just nutrition, but lifestyle as well. So can you talk about a little bit about what you do with your clients when they come to you and your practice with diet and then what some of those lifestyle things are that you start looking at with, with clients when they come? Yeah,
1: sure. So I think what's really important for us to, d- to remember is that IBD is complex, and there's not just one thing that causes it. We don't fully understand exactly what causes it, but there are about three or four things in the mix. And that also, in terms of the symptoms that it gives, they're not straightforward either, that there are lots of different knock-on effects that the disease can have. So it's a multi-dimensional problem that you're looking at. So looking at it in a one-dimensional view is very unhelpful, I think. So actually taking that more holistic view is something that's really important. So I would always be looking and working alongside a patient's medical team. So I'm not qualified to do anything medically, but I am able to get the patient to ask the right questions of their medical team if we think something's not working so well with their medication or maybe they've kind of slipped under the radar and they haven't had follow-up tests or anything that they have um, meant to have had and they're still getting symptoms it's then we talk together so I'm quite a patient advocate as well as so I do the nutrition side of things the lifestyle side of things and then kind of like a it's not really part of the service, but it kind of is, is the patient advocacy thing. So, kind of going back is looking at that multi-dimensional view as I'm often talking about pieces of the puzzle when I'm looking at how we support a patient with IBD. So medication is an important piece of the puzzle that's being dealt with by their medical team. So I'm looking and there's kind of pieces of the puzzle within those pieces of the puzzle, puzzle, if that makes sense. So I'm looking at the nutrition side of things. There's also, I think, a psychological component and then there's a lifestyle component. So really you're looking at four things. You're looking at medication. You're looking at diet, you're looking at lifestyle, and you're looking at mental health support. If every single patient got that, I think we'd be in a much better place in terms of patient care. But unfortunately, that's not always the case or not the case that I see here in the UK. So what I try and do is is look at all those pieces and make sure that they're being covered. So very much the focus is, is on nutrition. But knowing actually that stress is a really, really big factor for loads of our patients and helping our patients to understand that and to support them with simple tools to manage their stress, but then understand my limitations in terms of my qualifications on that and saying, actually, if that's something that's really, really affecting you, I might need to refer you to someone else to get specific support with that. But what I would do is really act like a bit of a detective and to say how big are these pieces of the puzzle for you as an individual patient so it may be that the nutrition side of things is quite a small piece of the puzzle but stress is a big piece of the puzzle and because we've talked about it and we've understood that actually your pattern of flares come about from stressful events that happen in your work life or your family life or something like that so maybe that's the piece of the puzzle that we need that needs to be focused on most and I'm really lucky that I work alongside some amazing health psychologists clinical psychologists as well who I refer patients to who um, provide such a good service to fill that gap where it's it becomes outside of my remit. So I'm looking at that side of things all the time and, and giving kind of more general advice on those topics. And if they need more specialist care, then I know who to send them to. And then from the nutrition side of things, it's really taking each patient as they come because someone might have tried lots of different things and they want to like do a bit of troubleshooting or they want to just make sure they're dotting all the i's and crossing all the t's it may be that someone's newly diagnosed and they have not even considered diet at all or it may be that someone understands that their diet's not is quite poor and they need quite a lot of support and education in terms of moving forward and what what i get a lot as well is people having been given or read misinformation because it's so important that people realize there is widespread and slightly terrifying in some respects misinformation on the internet about diet and IBD. And some of that misinformation is making patients more unwell rather than better. So I spend a lot of time unpacking what people have done and what people understand about diet and their IBD. So maybe someone's been excluding a food for a really long time, but they really don't need to. So I'm also always taking like a holistic view of nutrition as well. So I'm looking at food related quality of life as well. So quality of life specifically around food and food choices, which we know is very poor in patients with IBD. Which makes sense, doesn't it? If we eat foods and they make us not feel very well, then our quality of life around that's going to be bad. But it's my job to say, okay, you've excluded that food and that's causing you loads of stress when you're out and about. But actually, do you need to exclude that food or not? Or are there ways that we can adapt that food to mean that you can eat it again? So again, I I take a very positive view when it comes to nutrition. It's I'm often more often than not, adding things in to my patient's diet rather than taking them out, which is a lovely position to be in. And my patients are often very grateful for that. So that's good.
0: I bet. What a comprehensive view of everything. That's just incredible. Have you found your conversations with the medical teams, have you found those conversations to be more receptive over the years or Doctors, physicians, are they starting to recognize what a difference diet and overall lifestyle changes can make in a disease like IBD? Yeah,
1: I'm lucky that the consultants that I tend to work more closely with and who refer patients to us are refer patients to us because they see the value um, in it. I generally have seen that consultants and teams are more receptive to diet and do really realize that it makes a difference and I think that that comes from patient feedback as well so patients are saying like I've done this I've improved my diet and I'm feeling better and then they see it in their results as well so maybe it's improved blood markers nutrient markers in some instances it might be improved fecal calprotectin um, reduced inflammation so it I think it's really important all the time that as a patient, if you are making dietary changes, whether that's by yourself or supported, I'd always encourage you to try and get support. And that's not just saying that because it's the job that I do. I'm saying that because it's a minefield out there and you need someone to guide you specifically for your disease. But if you do notice positive changes, then report that back to your team, because the more as patients we can be reporting back that we feel better for doing these things, the more likely they're they are to look into saying, oh, okay. So actually loads of my patients have been saying recently that they've changed their diet and they feel better. There must be something to do this. And hopefully then that changes that narrative that they're saying to their patients about, yeah, about diet not being important. Because unfortunately, I do still hear people being told that diet doesn't make a difference, even though we have now loads of research that shows that it really does.
0: I love that message of even if you're with a, maybe a physician who doesn't believe in diet, but if you're someone who's experiencing that it has benefited you to go ahead and share that message and plant that seed in in the naysayers.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. And I think that's so important because that's the only way we're going to change those people's opinions and get them to understand it a bit more. And I do understand. And look, consultants shouldn't be giving dietary advice. They're not qualified to do so consultants doctors they get maybe an hour of nutrition training in their whole entire degrees in some of in some cases whereas i've studied for five years to do the nutrition job that i do um so and they look they've got all these medications coming out all the time i think we've got like seven biologics in the pipeline in the uk at the moment um and generally that are in that are being researched so keeping on top of that must be such a huge thing anyway But it's just, I think, even the switch of away from diet doesn't make any difference at all to yes, diet is an important part of this, but it's not something I can give information on because it's not my area of expertise is such an important one and can actually empower patients so much.
0: So much so. I noticed in my own journey, I felt like food was one thing that I I could have control over. There's so much with IBD that we can't control that we can't, no matter what we do, we can't control how it's going to behave. But I felt with my own journey, I felt like food was something that I could do something to make myself feel better overall, to help my overall wellness, my overall health, that it gave me a little something to grasp onto when everything else felt like it was doing whatever it did
1: yeah absolutely and I think that comes back to the empowering piece isn't it it's that like you're just told to take this medication and sit there and wait for it to do its job but actually what patients don't realize is there's lots that we can do that is within our control like helping to support our sleep helping to manage our stress eating a healthy balanced diet which all is really helpful not only to help that medication work more effectively but to help us to feel better but I do think it's a really important thing that we need to just caveat there as well, is That control thing. That control can be a positive thing, but that control can also be a negative thing. And that we see the prevalence of disordered eating and eating disorders being much higher in people with IBD than they are in the general population, which is, again, why I would always encourage, if you're able to, is to get a referral to see a dietitian or nutritionist or to seek one out yourself privately to guide you through this so that you don't go down a hole of that kind of disordered eating, eating disorder kind of rabbit hole because that's not good for us in that respect. So I think absolutely right is it's really empowering and it's great to have something that is is within your control. But there's a fine line, I would say.
0: I agree and very great advice. So you mentioned earlier on that you regretted not talking more about your, your surgery and your bag when you were a child, what was it and when did you finally decide to start sharing more openly about your story and start talking more? What finally compelled you to do that?
1: I, it was when I set up my business, basically. And when I started sharing that story, I realized how empowering it was for other people. Um, and that's what really spurred me on to talk about it and what I realise now and I guess also like social media wasn't around when I was first diagnosed and the internet wasn't really around that much either which seems kind of crazy now (laughs) and makes me feel quite old (laughs) so uh, yeah I think it was sharing my story to help empower others to get the help and support they need that was something that um, and now I'll like talk to anyone who'll listen (laughs) basically (laughs) you can't shut me up about it
0: (laughs) (laughs) which is okay we need more voices we need more people telling their stories and and sharing what they're going through
1: yeah definitely I think it's so uh it's I really very rarely met anyone before starting this work, I really rarely met anyone else who had IBD um, and had gone through the same thing. So I never had any of that kind of shared experience. But it's amazing now when, and it's again, why a lot of patients come to us is that you connect almost instantly on a much deeper level with someone else with IBD than you do with anyone else just because there's that like unsaid shared understanding between you two and that's why patients say they come to us. So I, there's um, in terms of my business, there's three of us that work in the business. There's myself and I have a lovely dietitian who works with me who also has IBD and has been through a pretty similar journey to me. And that was a really important thing when I expanded the business to get someone else who had that lived experience as well because it's the feedback that we get from our patients is that basically, like, we get it and we get how the roller coaster, the ups and downs how great it can be, but how terrible it can be. And when my patients are explaining their symptoms, they know that I really understand it. So I think that that's, yeah, that's, it's important to share.
0: So as we get ready to wrap up, what would be the final message or biggest piece of advice that you would like to share with listeners? Diet matters in IBD.
1: I think it's really as simple as that. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty, there's a whole list of other tips and things like that that I could give. But I think that's really is my main message. Generally is, if you've been told that diet doesn't make a difference, then you've been falsely informed. It really does make a difference. So do explore it. If not, if it And some people find that actually diet doesn't have a huge impact on their disease. We know that it can really help in terms of managing symptoms. So it might make you feel better just on a daily basis. What's really important is that diet is not a cure and diet and, and medication are not mutually exclusive. So I very rarely work with patients. Well, I don't work with any patients who have refused medical treatment. And I generally 99.9% of our patients are on some form of medication. And the dietary support that we're doing is actually alongside those medications to improve quality of life even more on top of the medications that they're taking. So do explore it as an option for you alongside your medications, because you never know it could, and I see it all the time with our patients in clinic, it can be the difference between existing and thriving.
0: And that's a huge difference. What a great message. So if people want to learn more about you, your practice, where can they find you online? Yeah,
1: sure. So my uh, Instagram is probably where I'm most active in terms of I'm not very good with things like TikTok and stuff like that, because I manage all my social media and and the business and stuff myself, basically. Um, I only have a certain amount of time. So Instagram is the best place. And also that's where I share lots of free content and information. So I'm often breaking down recent research papers that have been published into more layman's terms, and how that impacts patients, but also sharing information and advice um, for free with patients so they know that they have a place that they can go to for evidence-based nutrition. Because again, there's lots of misinformation and lots of people sharing nutrition advice online, which is incorrect. So the handle for that is at Clemy Oliver Nutrition on Instagram. And I also um, have lots of blogs on my website. So namclinic.com, nalmclinic.com, N-A-L-M clinic.com. There's a backlog of loads of different blogs on there and I'm often updating them as well. And again, that's lots of um, like free content and free information. And if anyone is interested in getting that support, the information about how to do that is on our website as well. So, yeah, they can see the services that we offer and how we can support patients.
0: And you can work with patients worldwide, correct?
1: I can. I can work with patients all over the place. So I have patients in America, Australia, in Europe, all over the place. So, yes, we work with patients internationally.
0: Fantastic. I will put all of the links in the show notes so that people can find those and find you easily. With that, thank you so much for sharing your journey with us today and raising awareness for IBD and spreading the message that diet does matter. Thanks so much for having me again. Thank you for listening. If you love these interviews and want to support the podcast, visit my website at cronesfitnessfood.com, where you can browse my featured products page to shop the companies I love and support. Make a donation using the Buy Me A Coffee link to send a little love. Or grab a copy of my book and IBD story, Crohn's Fitness Food and My Rocky Road to Health. If you have an IBD story that you want to share, send me an email at story at crohn's food dot com. And always remember, be strong, be grateful, and keep going.